Welcome to Season 4 of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again, and I have China, the big lie, the truth of trillions in a culture of cash. I've got Mario Cavallo. We're talking about his book this morning, and it is a fascinating read. But before we get into the book, went to the meat of the book, I wanted to ask, Mario, what what was the reason for writing this book? It had to be written. It really did. I, I, I'm, a, I'm frustrated in the, in the world. I'm a bit of an idealist. And in, in being an idealist, though, what, what I want for people, uh, including myself, is to deal with reality. You know, li- life, we were talking a little bit before the show, life is tough at times. And so you want to know that you're dealing with reality so that you're responding with what real to what reality is the real true reality and it reminds me of the story of my my friend from Chongqing who first invited me to China 14 years ago and when we got he, he uh, was a friend of mine from Los Angeles where there's of course a very large Chinese community he invited me to Chongqing and in Sichuan province and we were on the plane and he said Mario he said anything and everything you think you know about China he said just forget it because when we land nothing is going to be at all like what you think or heard it was going to be. So there's that difference, the gap between perception and reality. And especially because of the particular mm, known uh, high level of, of, of conflict and, and uh, you know, salt and pepper between America and the United States, uh, there's great misperception and there's great misunderstanding. And over the course of 14 years, those things became more and more obvious to me and more and more obvious to me. I began talking about them in speeches. I began writing articles about it. And then one day my friend said, you really need to write a book about this. And, and so it just it had to be written to clarify those really serious misunderstandings, uh, especially considering what's happening to China and the fact that whether we like it or not, it's impacting a, a, a huge changes in the global economy and, and even the society. So it is a very important thing for people to be aware of. Well, do you think that, you know, one of the major misunderstandings of China is that uh, people think, oh, you know, it's tied into the global economy and uh, that there's there's mis- there's a misalignment of budgets and the, the deficit's so strange. Is that just... Uh, the North Americans not getting what the whole picture is? Yeah, they, they're really uh, relatively, I don't want to say misinformed as much as I think uninformed about the reality of the economic situation over here in China. Um, for example, there's a lot of talk now about how the Fed has, you know, uh, accumulated this massive amount of, of, of sovereign United States debt, you know, now trillions of dollars. And of course, the same thing has happened in Europe. And, and of course, Japan did the same thing a long time ago. And now they're doing it even, even more with the latest round of, of, of what's called economics. You know, he's now buying bonds like crazy. And, but if you said to an American, did you know that China's borrowing, China's debt levels are also through the roof, just as high as America's? And they go, oh, 
they just don't know that that's the case. However, in China's case, it's relative to the fact that the Chinese economy, the whole country, is now in the expansion phase. And the best way I'd love to say this is if you wanted to have a crystal ball of what was happening in China today, starting only 10 to 15 years ago, just go post-World War II United States. You have the great expansion of the United States post-World War II. Of course, you know, Europe was decimated. America stepped in and helped to rebuild Europe. But at the, sa- at the same time, that set the stage for America to become the superpower. And America had this amazing 40, 50-year expansion, which started post-World War II. China is in the first 10 years of that exact same expansion. So while China has huge debts, it's relative to the fact that China is also now in the golden time of expansion, which is probably going to last another 20 to 30 years based on how we've seen other societies expand, you know, historically, including, again, the United States, which is the most recent example. Now, you know, that that is fascinating because... I remember when I was in Asia, it was people were freaking out when when China or other parts of Asia uh, dropped below a ten percent growth rate. And here in North America, a ten percent growth rate—that's a pipe dream. So, are they still? Do they still have that attitude that, that that man? We're we're doing so well, but let's just push even harder. You know, Ch- China is slowing, and China is slowing, as Jim O'Neill noted, purposely. So, for example, if we look at the real estate and, and mortgage market here, uh, the, the real estate market has now definitely slowed and is even going, going down a little bit. And everyone's getting up in arms and worried about it. But, but this was intentional. If you look at the policies, in America, you can purchase a home with almost no money down, 5% down. But in China, you have to put down 30 to 40%. So on your mortgaged home, you've still got 30 to 40% equity. And you can't even get a mortgage, Bob, on a second home. It's simply not available in current policy. And then you could never get a 30-year mortgage. There's no such thing. Mostly mortgages here are 10 to 15 years, tops 20 years. So those are tight policies, and they're purposely tight to slow the market down. So it's, it's not that it's out of control. It's the opposite. It's very much in their control. Hmm. Is it, do you think that's the, one of the reasons that we're seeing so much uh, property being bought abroad because there's less controls? I mean, here in Vancouver, there's a massive market of basically empty condominiums that are owned by people from mainland China. Yeah, you're, you're catching a great point. And that is, you know, China has, be, China has achieved wealth, uh, not only the wealthy, but again, as, as the title of you know, the, the, the subject of my book, that the middle class even have far more wealth than any foreigner realizes. And so they've got money. Well, well, if you had money for the first time in your life, we, what we call the nouveau riche, right? If you were a nouveau riche and you now have the opportunity to, to be able to expand your life because you're nouveau riche, what are the three things that you probably want? You want your child to go overseas to get educated in America or in Europe, great universities. You want to buy a place to live and go overseas in another country. This is very natural. And so we're seeing lots of money go out into the American market uh, and into the European market 
And of course, as you just mentioned, Vancouver, the Canadian market, but even though prices are quite high, I'm kind of surprised you're telling me about Vancouver. Prices are really high up there, whereas I think real estate in America now is a bargain and the Chinese are snapping it up. They're snapping it up. They're buying it like crazy. Well, I think maybe what it is is for for Vancouver, we're getting people that have been in in the uh, the real estate market for a long time, have snapped up a lot of bargain stuff, but now they're you know, it's almost the richer, the more affluent of the affluent uh, are looking at Vancouver as a prime spot. It's like, wow, this is a great place to live, blah, blah, blah. Same with other resort-style places, more as a vacation yeah. destination investment. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think of Manhattan in America, you know, that amazing, amazing place, you know, Manhattan. Uh, you know, it's, it's a gem. Uh, it's a gem on the planet. But, of course, you couldn't buy anything there for less than a million bucks, I think. Yeah. Now, the 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 weird thing is, is like many years ago, um, before the multiple crashes that happened over here, and then the major crash that happened in Japan, Japan came in here and just started gobbling up all sorts of real estate in North America. Is that is that different than what's happening with China? Yes, it is. Because right now, China's not only gobbling up real estate, but businesses are now also uh, gobbling up investment for business. So foreign overseas investment uh, from China is now at amazingly high levels all over the world. So there is this now spider effect. The, the China spider web is going out all over the world. Uh, I could give you literally, uh, there's a, the, the, the old historical reference, Bob, is, oh, let me think of it. Referring to England, the, the, empire, the, the sun never sets over the empire or something along those lines. And, and this, was, this was regarding when the idea of when England uh, had, uh, along with the, a couple of the other European countries, you know, uh, Portugal and Spain, had literally gone out on their ships and taken over India and taken over the West Indies and, and taken over uh, much of Southeast Asia. So the sun never set on the kingdom of, of, of England. And we are seeing that happen now. We're looking at billions and billions of dollars. China is outreaching and investing in South America. Massive deals in Brazil. Massive, uh, even some call it colonization into uh, Africa. So those are things people never hear about. And I mean in the multiple, multiple billions deals that are the biggest that are ever in history. But then we move this to Europe, same thing. Huge investment in England. Look at what we're seeing now. The yen, the Chinese yen, now being traded in London openly. And they just announced the Chinese yen being traded openly in Germany. So this is gonna be the first location in Frankfurt um, <clears throat> for the European Union. And then in America, when you look at investment from Chinese, it's in businesses and in municipalities and in cities, not just in real estate. For example, did you know, poor Detroit, right? You know, Detroit has really gotten hit hard by the recession. The city has is, is been, I'll use the word decimated. Well, do you know that Chinese people and Chinese companies in the last three, four years have invested over $120 million, $120 billion, excuse me, buying up Detroit. 
and they're buying up commercial property and municipality property, not just private residences. So the, 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 the dynamics of the investment are far more commercial expansion minded, not just the real estate market to have pretty homes to go to. Now, I want to flip that one on his head because uh, there's a lot of uh, business people here in North America that are fascinated with China. They look at it as an opportunity. Uh, there's a Chamber of Commerce. There's one here in Vancouver that goes and they do a, uh, a visit to China. How realistic are those trips? Are they seeing the right type of people or is it kind of like almost like a fancy tour for business people? I'll give it a 50-50 vote on that. I agree with the idea. Uh, let's just take, you know, economy and society A and economy and society B Economy in society A is, you know, at the end of its 50, 60 year uh, economic cycle. So that economy is having a tough time. Uh, now you go over to a con- that's natural to understand and it's historical. It's true throughout history. Now you go to the, you go to the economic cycle of economy in society B, which would be China. And it's at the beginning of its economic growth cycle. Literally, it's just started 10 years ago. So obviously we could all say, it's wise to go to the expanding place and that there's more opportunity there. I think it was Jim, the, the, famous, uh, the famous investor uh, and author, uh, Jim Rogers. He said, if you were smart in the, in the 1800s, you lived in London. In the 1900s, you lived in, in New York. And in the 2000s, you live in Asia, right? Because that's when those economies were expanding. So to that degree, I will say to you, and as someone who's been here for 14 years, yeah, of course, there's great opportunity. You want to be in the expanding economy. You yourself mentioned to me you've been in Shanghai. It's incredible. It's dynamic. It's entrepreneurial. Uh, people are ready and willing and want to do deals, and they have money to do those deals. Now, let me end the rosy picture. Doing business is tough everywhere. Any entrepreneur knows that. So whether you're trying to start a business or do a big multimillion-dollar joint venture, the risks are very, very high, whether that's in America or in Europe or whether that's in China. And then you add the culture difference, the, the fact that the thinking is different, that just the fundamental way that the, the, the mono-ethnic Chinese society is, people literally just think differently. So there's that uh, higher potential for clashes of thinking that are culture-based. And so... Yes, come, it's great, it's amazing, but it's also, it's tough. It, there's, not, it, there's no magic, wonderful formula that says you're going to come here and get rich. In fact, companies have come here and, and lost lots of money too. So the waters can be treacherous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I do remember some, some pretty uh, horrific things happening to uh, usually big companies. You know, when I was in... Uh, in Asia, every now and again, we'd hear about some big company just getting devastated and taken out by the knees. But you didn't hear a lot about the smaller companies, but I'm sure that was happening as well. They just didn't have enough PR value to, to be considered news. Uh, there you go. And you, you make a great point. And at the same time, thanks for segueing into this SME topic, if I may. <laughs> yes. The, the, the small companies who come to China. And, you know, myself, you know, uh, I'm, I'm an example of this. I came to China as an independent entrepreneur 14 years ago. So I didn't come on this, you know, on a corporate expat package uh, like a lot of uh, foreigners uh, do, and, and, and that's fortunate for them. I came as an independent entrepreneur 
entrepreneur uh, and to make my own way. And I can tell you that the opportunities are here. And here's the key point, and this is probably going to be, I might call this the most one mind-blowing point of, of, of our talk today. People think that China's economy is still driven by manufact- you know, agri- first and second in, uh, tier business, which would be agriculture and commodities, and then manufacturing and infrastructure. Okay? So everybody still has that idea, and then of course exports, that, oh yes, China has, has been building and expanding on infrastructure and manufacturing, and they can't rely on that anymore, and they have to rebalance the economy at some point to, to domestic consumption. This has been the, the party line we're hearing in media for the last two years. Bob, the rebalancing has already occurred. The private sector, the rise of the services sector, I have the graph right in front of me from CLSA, Market Investment and Banking Research Firm. The private sector in China is already the largest percentage contributor to GDP, larger than manufacturing, larger than agriculture and commodities, and it's also far more profitable. And that private sector is the millions and millions and millions of entrepreneurial Chinese who start their own businesses, including my wife. You know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I'm a small business owner as well, and they figure about 80% of the the money that's generated, the cash that is being generated here in Canada is done by small businesses because there are so many of them. They're, uh, they're lean. They're very cost-effective. They may not be making a ton of money, but when they do, they do it in such a way that uh, there's a tremendous amount of profit potential. Is that the same thing in China? Absolutely. I, I mentioned it a moment ago where I said, and the private sector, the private sector section of the portion of the economy is also the most profitable. There's a space here in this society, which again, I think a lot of uh, Americans don't realize, this is an open entrepreneurial capitalistic economy. It's run by a government with, uh, on a socialist basis, but the economy itself is market-driven and capitalism-driven. If you want to start a business, go down and get a business license, hire people, rent an office, be an entrepreneur, if you find a product that you think you can buy for a dollar and sell for three dollars, go for it. Be an entrepreneur. That freedom does exist here in China. And again, I think that's something most foreigners don't realize. What about language? Because I, when I was there, I remember running into a guy that he basically dealt in steel. Uh, he bought steel anywhere he could get it and brought it into China. And he said, Bob, if you spoke Chinese, I can make you a millionaire in four years. Is that still true, or can you get away with not speaking so much Chinese and still make it? I, I won't necessarily agree with him that he can make you a millionaire in that four years. I still <laughs> say doing business is tough like it is anywhere else in the world. You know, try to open a restaurant in America, and a year later, 85% of those restaurants are closed because they, they failed. It's the same in China, so I, I don't know if I'm going to agree with the first part. The business is tough. You've got to work hard. You may fail. You may succeed and make the million. Uh, but uh, there's no guarantees here any better than anywhere else. Do you have to be able to speak Chinese to be successful in China these days? The, the absolutely correct and accurate answer is it is very, very helpful. You know, there are foreigners here who don't speak Chinese, 
by and large, the position that they're in is in a corporate position. So in that corporate position, they're insulated because they're surrounded, for example, the general manager of a multinational company or even the VP. They don't speak any Chinese. Well, but their assistant is a bilingual Chinese and fluent in English. And many of the Chinese around them, their first tier of management, their team, right? Those people typically can speak English. And so even though this person is, because they're within a corporate environment, they're able to get away with that not speaking Chinese. And then if they have a high level meeting with someone else who doesn't speak English, then again, those assistants are there uh, or possibly a formal interpreter to be able to make the communication easier. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're out there and dealing with Chinese people on a daily basis and you don't speak good Chinese, it's a distinct, distinct disadvantage. And I tell you this from personal experience. When I go to speak with potential partners or clients uh, about my wife's business, I I have to be able to speak Chinese because they, they don't speak any English at all. And I'm dealing, so here I am in the culture dealing directly with Chinese people on a daily basis, which is typical for a smaller business, right? So huge advantage to being able to know, the, being able to speak and, and understand the language. Um, I have a question here too. Is like, let's say you're coming from North America, you speak uh, Cantonese or, or, or Mandarin, and uh, you arrive in Shanghai. I say, great, I speak Chinese. I'm going to rock it here. How quickly will that person become disillusioned because they don't understand how businesses run in China? Yeah, well, that, the, the correlation to that question is those of us who speak really good Chinese, and my Chinese is, by the way, uh, good to very good, but nowhere near fluent. Um, and then the people that I know who are foreigners here who speak really good Chinese, they read and write, they studied in university for two years, they warn you that you know just enough Chinese to be dangerous. So knowing the language alone is not enough because of what you just said. There's a different way of doing business here. It's, it's you know, you want to dance a tango and, so, and the other person is thinking waltz. And then the two of you come together and you're like, well, we're both trying to dance, we're both trying to do business, but you're thinking tango and they're thinking waltz. The rhythm is completely different. And that leads to very frustrating, very frustrating experience for a lot of foreigners who come here. You're absolutely right. So as a foreigner, how should we approach China? Should we go there, get a job teaching English, kind of figure it out, do the slow approach, or should we study first before uh, jumping into that culture? Hmm. Uh, I'm going to say it depends on what your objective is. Uh, you know, if, 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 if you're, I mean, there could be so many reasons for wanting to come. If you're looking for the cultural experience and you are in a difficult, let's say you're, uh, lower, lower to middle class in America, your situation's not that good. It's hard to find anything better than a $12 an hour job in the current economy. Um, and you need and want to make a break and, and enjoy a new culture. You can come to China and teach English and easily make 25 bucks an hour and they'll probably even pay for your apartment. That sounds like a good deal. And in that case, you're going to just jump right in because you know, the school's going to, you're going to be a teacher. The, the students here respect teachers tremendously. They call you Lao Shi 
Lauscher, which means professor. You know, there's great respect for teachers. You're going to have a really nice experience. And you're definitely going to be a person who's just dove right into the local culture, even though you don't speak much Chinese at all. You can do that and get away with it and have a great experience. And then your Chinese friends and students become the people who uh, introduce you to Chinese and help you learn your Chinese along the way. On the other hand, if your intentions are higher level, more serious, like you have a million dollars, you want to come in and you want to invest, you better do your homework. So we're back to your second scenario where, no, you better do your homework, take some culture classes, get yourself hooked up with some Chinese people who, with some foreigners who know China very, very well, befriend them. And of course, it's great, as you mentioned earlier, to be able to do that through the international business organizations like the Chambers of Commerce. So your Chambers of Commerce become your network and your support. You go to Chamber of Commerce meetings at all different kinds of business topics. They have them every single week. There's dozens of meetings by the American Chamber, the European Chamber, the German Chamber. And sure enough, you go and you meet real people, real foreigners who are here doing business, who've been here for three years, five years, 10 years, even like myself, almost 15 years. And that's where you learn, and that's where you get your savvy. You do your homework. You take your time, and you ease in, and you get, as we might say, the, you get the lay of the land. And it's critical that you do that. Now, I want to dig into the book because, you know, it, it's interesting how it's written. There's it, lots of little small uh, micro paragraphs. Um, chapters how should somebody approach this book should should you read it chapter to chapter or should you just go to the contents and, and zip down the content and say, oh that looks interesting i think i'll read that part i really did want to write it as that bedside you know and it fits the way i, I want to also say it fits the way my brain works uh i didn't write it as a page-to-page novel uh it's certainly good to to read it page to page from beginning to end there's it has a certain flow to it but at the same time, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I wrote it as a much a, a larger number of smaller bites of messages, which makes it good to pick up, flip the pages, and, and then just find some chapter, a chapter, or even some of the page chapters are as little as two and three pages, where, hey, what a fascinating topic that is, standing on its own. And I did that, you know to make it more entertaining, to make it more engaging, and to give a person that, that variety and the chance to be able to do it either way. Yeah, and it, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, befriending people, getting to know uh, people from uh, China, reading you know, just little snippets of this book will give you great uh, ideas for, for small talk and say, oh, yeah, what about this and that, just to get the conversation going, and, and then they'll fill in the gaps. Um, I think that's a, that's an amazing resource that this book brings. Now, getting to you, because, you know, you've been there for 15 years, you've been doing the entrepreneurial thing probably way before then. Um, for you, when you were gathering this information, putting into a book form, what was your aha moment? What, where was it that something you already knew, but it became crystal clear? It's like, oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suddenly realized that it happened over the course of many years. But then, like you said, the light bulb went off and I was like, oh my heavens, all around me are people who are ordinary looking, even uh, a little bit shabby looking. You know, they're not fancy, right? And they have money. And that, that just doesn't compute. It's not supposed to be that way. If you look average, 
than your average. And, you know, you might have $5,000 in the bank. And this is not the case in China. And the reason this is not the case in China is because there is and has been for many, many years a cash economy. You know, so much business is done here in China in cash. Americans can't remember what that's like anymore because the society, the banks, the government have, you know, pretty much 99% succeeded in switching everybody over to plastic. Go into a grocery store in America and hand them $100 bills to pay for $85 worth of groceries. You're guaranteed to have the supervisor call over to, your, to, the, to the booth. Well, sir, uh, why are you paying in $100 cash? I mean, it's an unusual experience in America. But in China, it's a cash economy. It started as a cash economy uh, 20, 30 years ago. And so people do business with each other back and forth in cash, accumulate lots of cash. And by its very nature, nobody talks about how much cash they have. And I started discovering and realizing more and more and more and more all around me how much cash people have and that this cash is not counted. It's not included in official GDP. So when you say $10 billion, $10 trillion of official GDP, no, there's a six to $10 trillion cash economy. And then I started investing. I said, this is incredible because I realized it was absolutely true. And how did, I, how did I know it was absolutely true? I took the idea to all the Chinese people, and they were bored with it. They were like, we know that. <laughs> so there it was, Bob. They was, <laughs> yeah, we know this. And I thought, oh, my heavens. You know what? It's, uh, it, it, I'd forgotten what it was like to live in in. in in that type of world because when I was in, you know, Japan and, and uh, in China and in Asia, other parts of Asia, um, it was all cash. And when I came back here to North America, it was all debit card. And I was going around with cash and I'd have a hundred bucks, 200 bucks in my pocket to run around for the day. And people were shocked. I'd bring out this big wad and paying cash. And then they said, you know, and there's, they were terrified. So, Bob, Bob, no, you got to get this. There's this paranoia that you're not supposed to have cash. It's very, very weird. It's, actually, it's a little sad, actually, because then it makes it very easy for the government to track every single penny that you own. I, I, I have to say, unfortunately, there's, there's some oppression there. You know, it, it's unfortunate because you now, the degree to which, you know, America has become stricter and stricter post 911. Uh, there's a, there's more and more of a police state kind of atmosphere going on there to where, you know, if, if you got pulled over in your car and had two or $3,000 cash on you, you know, the police might literally confiscate it on suspicion of, 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 of what, and this is absurd. This, this is absolutely absurd. And I, and I have to tell you a positive story. Can you imagine that here in China, when people buy a house, so let's, let's say we're talking about a $200,000 house and, you know, Mr. Lee is, is, is selling it and Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. Wong are buying it. And, the, and you have a real estate agent, right? Just like Caldwell Banker. And the day of closing the sale, you go in and you sign all the papers. Mr. and Mrs. Wong bring literally this is a formal purchase of a home the first part of the payment 40 percent down so mr and mrs wong walk into the real estate office with sixty thousand dollars cash in a bag the real estate agent is next to the bank and the real estate agent says we're going to walk with you and your bag of money and and uh, mr lee the seller 
and we're going to walk together directly to the bank and walk up to the teller, and you're going to deposit this money into the account. This is the formal transaction and way of doing it. Bags of cash. Yeah, it's shocking. I remember uh, learning in Japan that people were coming into uh, banks and, and real estate uh, situations with, you know, a lot more than 60000 and nobody blinking oh, an yeah. eye. I mean, if you if you were caught right. in North America with $50,000 in a brown bag or in a suitcase, you'd be thrown in jail. Imagine if you took it into a bank and said, hi, I want to deposit this. Like, yeah, exactly. Me? Weep, weep. Please follow us. <laughs> Well, it, it, it is. It's just incredible. So, to that degree, it's still the wild, wild west out here. Uh, yeah, and and um, you know there is there is control. Like when I was in in uh, Bangkok, you know, you were only allowed to export fifty thousand baht outside of the country, and that fifty thousand baht is not a lot of money, folks. Um, here in North America, you can go from Canada to the United States with less than ten thousand dollars. You don't have to declare anything above that. You have to say, "I'm bringing in over ten thousand dollars." In a place like China, if you go from mainland China to Hong Kong or you're flying to Japan, is there that type of control of, of uh, cash movement? The answer is there's, there is now, yes. There, there absolutely is. Yep, they put it in place, Bob. It wasn't in place before, but they put it in place over the last few years. It's the same story. You can't cross the border with more than $10,000. And it has to do with, you know, the overreaching arm of all the governments working together, supposedly against, you know, uh, illegal drug trafficking and, and terrorism and weapons trafficking and all of this cash controls. This is, the, this is the reason that they state. And, yeah, those controls are now in place. Interestingly... There's still so many ways to get around it, and they do get around it, especially down around the Macau border. You know, uh, Macau is the tiny, tiny little, you know, former Portuguese colony, uh, the gambling mecca of Asia. It's this tiny little island, and the gambling revenue of Macau is 15 times higher than Las Vegas. Okay, so huge amounts of money being, uh, I'm gonna, let's use it, laundered, whether it might be legal or not. Uh, money flowing in through Macau. Um, and one of the ways that that happens, you're going to love this. Uh, you know, if you went to the grocery store and said, I'd like a cash advance from the cashier's little ATM machine, uh, I think the limit is maybe, what, 100 bucks? You know, if you buy groceries and, and you also would like to get some cash. Is that about right in America? Tell me. Yeah, you know, they, they'll, if you want more than 100, they'll, they'll kind of look at you weird. Yeah, and, and there's a little button there. You can choose up to maybe 250. It's like the, you have to push the button, and the maximum is like 250. Well, same kind of story. But in Macau, the, the gift shops, the jewelry shops, they're all, they're all under the same rules, which is to say, you know, you're not, you don't give cash advances to customers. Well, this rule is flagrantly ignored, and the local authorities you know, knowingly turn and look away. So you go to Macau, you go to a jewelry shop, and you tell them, uh, look, I'm here to gamble. I want to gamble $100,000, you know, even, even a half a million dollars. It really doesn't matter how much, honestly. And they say, uh-huh. So, you know, can you do this transaction for me? And they say, sure. And they will just do a, uh, a, an instant purchase and refund of a half a million dollars worth of diamonds, charge you 1%, which is how they make their money, 
and hand you your half a million dollars and you've now got your cash out of China. This, is, this has been going on for years and years and years. Uh, it's just incredible kind of stories, the things that are happening. Well, I think it works probably quite well because uh, the Asians, they love to gamble. So a lot of that time, that money does go into the casinos. No doubt about it. Like I said, those revenues in Macau are 15 times higher than Las Vegas. <laughs> Which is, and Vegas makes a lot of cash, folks. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, how a business person that, that you know, is, is in North America, they've got your book, they've read through the book. What's their next move? Well, I love the fact that they read the book because the goal is, is that they're now well-armed with, re, with, with reality as opposed to what they were thinking before they read the book. Yeah. And believe me, that, very passionately, that's been my, my goal. It's, I, I want you to understand really what's going on here. So, you know, one of, those, one of the examples that comes into play is you come and you think you're meeting and speaking with people who don't have any money, you will act accordingly. Well, after you've read the book, you know that that's more than likely actually not true. And so you're going you're to take a little different tack when you're dealing with those people. Uh, you're going to be a little bit different in your attitude and your thinking and how you want to negotiate with them because you're going to be more aware of the fact that, you know what, look, they do have money. Now, if they don't want to part with it, that's one thing. But the idea that you mistakenly think that they don't have any money, uh, you know, you're, you're now informed, you're now properly informed. And so you're going to do a better job of being able to handle things when you get over here. You know, um, for example, you know, the idea that, uh, speaking of money and income, right. The idea that Chinese, the, 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 and the national household income level in China is 3,500 us dollars and the Gini coefficient is 40 to one. I mean, these numbers are nonsense. Uh, Credit Suisse did the first study back in 2010, along with the China Reform Foundation uh, together. And this was the first study on the shadow economy in China, which showed that actual household incomes are actually two to three times higher than officially reported. So people have a lot more money here. If you look at the true economy, the Gini coefficient is actually the same as it is in the United States. Better that you know this when you arrive and get off the plane. Yeah, I, I remember being in, in Shanghai and being shocked that the average income was $75,000 um, per household. And I'm going like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot more robust. And we're talking about a large city here, folks, that has millions and millions and millions. I mean, it's got the Shanghai itself has got a larger population than the whole of Canada. And you imagine that a large percentage of those people making $75,000 uh, per household it's a huge amount of money. Well, in looking at their real estate, I, I had an investment, a gentleman I know who is in finance and he, he does investment deals. Uh, so he's, he's involved and speaks a lot to people with lots of money. And he's been here for years and years and very nice guy. And he said to me, he said, Mario, he says, you know, we have to realize that a very, very, very large, as in more than 50% of the population of Shanghai are millionaires on paper because of what their apartments are worth. Now they may not have sold it, but in fact they are millionaires. And again, keeping in mind, you're talking about apartments that they had bought 10 years ago and have no mortgage on these apartments. So there are many, 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 many millionaires here on paper. Uh, it's, it's really mind boggling. It's my mind boggling situation. 
Well, the thing is, but they're a different type of millionaire. They're not the North American, hee, woohoo, I'm a millionaire, let's go spend some cash. It's like, oh, I've got this much, great, let's make some more, let's stick it back into the bank, let's reinvest it. Thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it because you know them. Uh, the Chinese people with money, are what they're thinking about is how to make more money. <laughs> you know, uh, the new, now the new generation, let's be fair, right? Uh, China's being westernized. You now, for the very first time, have fancy malls. You have an insanely booming autom- automobile economy, right? We know the, the China's now the number one auto market in the world. They're selling, last year they sold 21 million cars. They're going to sell over 24 million cars this year. So you're talking a million and a half, two million cars a month. And so people are now happily starting to show off some of their wealth, eat in nice restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the deep down, long fundamental value system still says, no, we do not spend all of our money. We don't have any credit card debt. We would never not pay off our credit card at the end of each month. We would never accumulate consumer debt. We would never buy anything that we couldn't afford, that we didn't have cash for. And we have money, but no matter how much we have, uh, if we have $200,000, we're thinking about how to make, four, how to make it and turn it into 400000 So they want to make money with their money. There's no doubt about that. Well, I think, and, and you know, going back to the core concept of the book, that there's, you know, there's trillions and trillions in cash that we don't even know exists being dealt, you know, going back and forth every day in China. Those trillions of dollars, that's money that is is driving the economy. But the consumption startup part of their economy is like if they're gonna if somebody goes out and said, Look, I'm gonna spend a hundred dollars on a meal or I'm gonna spend fifty thousand dollars on a car or or whatever, they've got a lot of cash reserves. And that's the m- fundamental difference between the the business mentality there and the business mentality here it's like ah let's go out on a limb let's risk it all which is you know it's it sounds exciting it's very cowboyish but boy when the economy goes bad if everybody's out on a limb that is i think the reason that north america is having such a hard time getting back on their feet is because everybody's way overextended way past their ability to ever make that money back I find myself thinking you've really hit the nail on the head. You know, uh, Chinese would never let themselves get, they don't let themselves get overextended. Now, of course, this might not, this wouldn't necessarily apply to the big, big investors and speculators. You know, they, 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 you know, they're obviously taking high risks and they know it, but I'm talking about the broad society, the households of China. Uh, I even asked one of my, I did a lot of research, which was interviewing interviewing, interviewing, interviewing Chinese people, asking them all of these kinds of questions. So one of the questions I asked a gentleman that I work with, wonderful Shanghainese uh, businessman by the name of Harry, and I said, or his English name is Harry. And I said, Harry, I said, so if if a Chinese family is going to go out and buy a new Buick Excel, which is a beautiful car, like a Ford Focus or a Buick Excel, this is about, uh, let's see, this is a $25,000 car. So if they were going to make that decision to go out and buy that car, more than 50% of them are going to pay, number one, more than 50% of them are going to pay cash for that car. They're not going to get a car loan. If they, can't, if they need to get a car loan, they won't buy that car. So number one is they're going to pay cash, 25000 for this car. Okay, and that is the case. 70% of the cars out on the road are brand new, and they don't have any car payments. But, then I, but the question I asked them, as you just mentioned, was, well, 
if they were going to spend $25,000, how much, what is the perception in their mind of how much they need to have in the bank before they would consider spending that 25,000. So as a percentage of what's in their bank account, is it 20%, 10%, 70%? What is it? And he gave me a number. He said, if they have, if a Chinese household has a couple hundred thousand dollars, they would go out and buy a $25,000 car and pay cash for it. But if they only had $75,000, they wouldn't do it in not in a million years. They just wouldn't do it. It's interesting. It's, it's all part of the culture, the, the inner self of the Chinese uh, populace, the downtrodden, for, for lack of a better word, have struggled for so long that actually having cash, having some money in the bank... Um, is a fundamental thing that you have to have before you can relax. And even here in in in, uh, in Canada, you'll run into people, you know, in the alley, and they're looking for bottles to cash those bottles. I was on a, a bus the other day, and this um, middle-aged, not a, not um, an under underachiever style uh, Chinese person. She was well dressed. She was. Uh, in great shape, she wasn't drunk, and she got up and she picked up a can and put it in her purse because she knew she could get five cents for that. Now, she's probably living in a $200,000 apartment or higher. She's probably making a lot of money. She's probably sending some money back um, or she's on a trust fund or something like that. She doesn't need that five cents. But because she sees that five cents on the floor and all these other Canadians sitting around, they don't even see five cents. They just say, it's a can. That is a fundamental difference between uh, the headspace of somebody that's, um, I'm not going to say cheap. They understand the value of what money is. And in North America, I think most people don't understand what $10 is. It's like, here's $10. And say, oh, great, I'm going to go spend it. Instead, say, well, there's $10 you could put in a bank and put another $10 in the bank. And in 10 years, you'll have $50,000 in the bank instead of owning uh, owing 2000 or 3000 or 5000 or 10000 to a bank. You hit on so many key points here about the differences of societies. And the first thing you'd mentioned was about struggle. Why and how is it that the Chinese became the best savers in the world? They save like 40% of their, of their income. It, it's just incredible. It was what you said. We can't think of China today without remembering what it was like 10, 15 years ago. You know, uh, and... They had it tough. You know, they, they had it tough. There was no economy. I asked my wife when she, was, when she grew up as, as a 10-year-old girl in the neighborhood. They played with sticks. They made games with sticks and leaves. There was no mall to go hang out at. Malls didn't exist. Private ownership of cars didn't exist. The family received not currency but coupons from the government to go take down to the state government store to redeem for their monthly allotment of pork and rice and vegetables. So I mean, that's how it was here only 10, 15 years ago. And that's how it still is here for a lot of people in terms of the fact that they really are in survival mode. There's no handout. So they become, by necessity, they become diligent about every yen. And I love the story 
because it leads to this, this next part you mentioned about the, 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 the nickel. Um, if you had a family, and, and this leads us to the subject of how Chinese negotiate constantly. Everything is a negotiation in China. Yeah, there's no price if tags. If you have, yeah, if, you, if you're a family with, uh, you know, modest means and a, you know, 10,000 RMB, $1,600 uh, a month salary, working hard, and own an economy car, uh, and you, a $10,000 economy car, and then you go downstairs to the local farmer's market to buy your groceries, and you get six bananas, and the, the lady, the banana lady says uh, 13 cents for the six bananas, you would automatically say, no, 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 10 cents. But you negotiate the three cents, Bob. You negotiate the three cents, just like the lady in the the Chinese lady in the alley in Vancouver who said would take up the can for the for the ten cents. You negotiate for the three cents, but you do this automatically out of habit. Now let me tell you the beautiful thing: that very same family, if they were living in a million dollar home and driving an alley instead of an economy car and making five thousand or ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars a month, guess what? They'd still go downstairs. And they'd still negotiate that three cents with the banana lady. It's automatic behavior. It's in their psyche. Yeah, it, it's the whole of the whole of Asia like that. I remember coming back here and being shocked that people didn't want to negotiate the price. And one of my favorite lines here in North America is, "Oh, if I give you cash, can you give me the three percent that the the credit card company was going to take away?" And people are shocked. And so, well, it's the truth. If I give you cash, I'm actually losing three percent because. The credit card company is going to take the 3% away from you, so why can't I have my 3%? Doesn't register at all. In China, they'd be, yeah, of course, that's a beautiful argument. Sure, here's your 3%. So we, we're talking about the pluses and minuses of this cash system. And, and, you know, in America, you can't get that 3% back. It's actually a good thing in one way. The fact that finances and business and law and legal rules and regulations are in place, you know, that, that adds confidence to your being able to do business in it. And that is good for a formal and, and organized society. But it also means when you go to the grocery store and say, I want my, let me have the 3% if I pay cash. They look at you and say, well, you know, this, this system we have in place, you know, the accounting, the management, the way we do our books, there's just no way we can make that entry if we give you back 3% cash. It's just not, it's not convenient because our system has been so formalized. Um, so there are pluses and minuses to it. I can understand they're saying it's just not possible. We, we have to follow the policies and the rules of, of accounting the way we do here. It has its pluses because you come to China, it's a cash world, a lot on the street and in business, and then you can get that 3%, and the, the vendor you're speaking to says, yeah, sure, no problem. You pay me cash, I'll give you a 5% discount. Like, yeah, great, I can do that. But what we haven't talked about yet is that this cash economy also allows for that non-transparency. So cash economies allow for huge amounts of unfair practices. Corruption is, is much higher here. Things that you can get away with, things that cause what, would be, what we call unfair trade practices, right? You know, I have a business. I want to offer you, Bob, products and services, you know, let's say, for example, corporate training, and I'm going to go up against another company 
that is also often corporate training. And, and my corporate training, in fact, is better. But the other guy gets the deal. And you know why the other guy got the deal? Because of the cash economy. Because the HR director got a cash payoff kickback off the books from the other corporate training company. So no matter how good my corporate training is, it's unfair. I got locked out. I couldn't get the business because there's kickbacks because of the cash economy. And th so you see, that's unfair and it is corrupt. And so there's a negative side to it also. Yeah, I think, well, the way I look at it, I think that a lot of that stuff goes on here in North America is just hidden uh, behind uh, a lot of rules and regulations and people saying that they're doing nice things. What's fascinating about uh, corruption, I don't want to use it corruption, like the the, 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 the grease that makes the wheels less squeaky, um, basically, that's a cultural thing. And we're not talking, you know, that scenario you talked about, it's like, well, I'd like to bid on this, this project, but this other person gets to bid and mine's lost by mistake. Uh, that's because that person's being taken care of for years and years and years. So it's part of the business relationship. It's like you have a business relationship. Oh, you've been so nice to me. Here's a $5,000 watch because I like you. It's not a bribe. It's because I like you. But that person understands that, wow, because he's been nice to me, I am now, unless I'm nice to him, I will lose face. And that is something in in Asia that doesn't really exist here is the importance of face. So you can, if your company, if the face of your company, if the respect that your company has in the business community is higher, that can trump a bribe. Agreed, 100. Face and relationships are uh, relative values. Whereas in American society, there's much more of a focus on absolute values. Right is right, right is wrong. Here in Asia, right is right and right is wrong, and wrong is right <laughs> in context. It's in context of the situation. And so it's like you said, you know, I turn around and I say, well, uh, I didn't give you the bid because I wanted to do business with the people that I have nice relationships with. And uh, uh, an Asian person would think, or a Chinese would say, well, of course, the relationship is important. That's an important part of the doing the business. But in America, they say, oh, no, that's unfair practices. And that's, in fact, illegal. Well, who are you to tell me how to run my business? Who are you to tell me who, who I want to do business with? I want to do business with these folks over here because I like them better. And, and because I like them better, I gave them a gold watch. Oh, no, no, that's a bribe. So we're, we're, we're having now a battle, a philosophical battle of, you know, relative values versus in, in context versus the absolute values and rules. Yeah, it, it's, I think that's more than anything else is the ability to do business in Asia is the understanding that um, you're not in North America. You've got to get over uh, culture shock and, and whoever has done business abroad or, or lived abroad understands what that word is. But unless you've lived culture shock, you don't get it. And, and you can explain it to people till, the, till you're blue in the face until they've understood that, listen, you don't go to Asia and change Asia. Asia, Asia will change you. And if you fight that's, it, that's you right. will fail. And, and again, keep, you, know, you mentioned, you asked me earlier, uh, once a person has read the book and then they're going to head, head to China, what should they be aware of? 
this is a negative they should be aware of, uh, that, you know, they're gonna, they may get locked out because of these issues. You know, they may get unfairly locked out because of these kinds of issues that relationships and, and payoffs and what, what we call, we know is called guanxi, right? That business is done on relationships. And so just because you walk in the door with the best product and wearing the shiniest suit, you may get locked out anyway even though you have the best product at the best price. And to that degree, be forewarned. You know, it's treacherous and you may get locked out and it's a bit unfair. And, well, you know what? Lots of things in America are unfair too, but it's just different. Yeah, there you got it in hit. It's just different. Hey, maybe that could be your next book. It's just different. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do people go to find out more about this book? Well, I'm so happy that uh, I got uh, Long River Press, uh, the Long River Press imprint by Sino Media International, yeah. uh, they're the largest publisher of books on China in North America, and that I, I was very fortunate. They offered me a wonderful contract to be the publisher of my book in North America, and they've just published it in May. And so it's uh, in print. The print version is up on Amazon. The Kindle version is going to be up very shortly, and across, and of course, the print version is slowly going to be making its way into the bookstores. So I'm, I'm, I'm wonderfully excited about that. And, and in today's world, you know, Amazon uh, makes it so easy to access. It's just, uh, it's just fantastic for authors. China, the big lie, the truth of trillions in the culture of cash. Mario, thank you for being on the show today. Bob, a pleasure. What a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week.